My name is Sonia Griffiths, I'm a novelist, and on behalf of Sandow Books, I'm talking to Dame Eileen Atkins, one of our best loved and most admired actors. She's played everything from Shakespeare and Chekhov to Arnold Wesker and Harold Pinter. She's appeared in many important films, The Dresser, Gosford Park, Cold Mountain or A Few. And she recently gave a very successful performance as the bedridden Queen Mary in Netflix's The Crown, where she demonstrated a notable physical prowess with her magnificently over-the-top curtsy to the new Queen. Eileen, though um, I'd seen you many times on stage and film, I met you first in person when you read for the BBC an adaptation of my first novel, Miss Garnet's Angel. And aside from the excitement of having you to read the book, because I particularly admire your dry, flat, ironic tone, what I remember best about that was the vehemence with which you berated the producer because you thought that she had adapted the book so badly. And it was that that made me first understand that not only are you a great actress, you're also a great reader. And we're talking today about your book, Will She Do? I thought it would be a good start to our conversation if you told us a bit about your reading history, because you didn't come from a very bookish family. No, no, I, I didn't. Um, I did love reading this Garnet's Angel, though, when we got it right. I think we had to make some adjustments, didn't we? Um, no, I, um, I came from a totally... Um, a working class family that uh, and my father I, I'm not too sure that he actually um, even could read very much he, um, but anyway I didn't go to school even till I was seven but I knew I could read I can remember the first thing I read in my father's my father was carrying me in his arms in Edmonton and there was a big advertisement up and it said, was it as simple as Bovril is good for you? I don't think, I think it was a bit more, Bovril puts beef into you. That's it. And I read that out. And my father said to my mother, as if I'd got a really unfortunate disfigurement. Oh, not disfigurement, as if it, uh, my, my, my father spoke this way, it was a very sad news. He said to my mother, oh, she can read. And that's because he told me wonderful stories when I was on it. He totally made up. Um, and he didn't want me to be able to read my own stories. But then somebody, I, as I say, I didn't go to school till I was seven, but someone, uh, the awful dancing teacher of the dancing class where I went to, um, called the KY School, she bought me my first book, which was Josie Click and Bun Again by Enid Blyton. And I know people berate Enid Blyton, but goodness, she helps you to learn to read. She was the sort of Harry Potter of her day. And um, I, know, I remember I could read it. 
so I don't know how I, I must have simply taught myself to read them. Um, and then I wanted once I'd seen a book then I wanted more books and it was almost a joke when I was young that that's all I ever wanted a book they got irritated me with me at Christmas because I would they would say what would you want a book <laughs> just a book <laughs> and um, but for years, it pretty well was Enid Blyton and, and the obvious ones that people told me about, like Anna Green Gables or um, Kidnapped. <laughs> you know, it was, that was the normal reading. And I, my reading didn't spread until I finally went to grammar school. And uh, this man who helped me a great deal with my life um, suggested things. I read them that were a little more. Can you can you tell us a bit more about Madame Yandel, as I think she's called? Yes, I Ma mean Madame Cavos Yandel. Uh, and her Yandel, real name was sorry. Well, yes, <laughs> because um, my granddaughter's favourite film that she's talking to me about now, and I was coming to see you for a long time was Ballet Shoes, in which you played Madame, who was a rather different sort of ballet teacher. And I think one of the things I found most um, enjoyable and stimulating about the early part of your book was your description of you as a, a as baby Eileen Soubrette. Yes. <laughs> it said on my card, I had to have a card made, uh, baby Eileen Soubretton dancer. Soubretton. And I had to look up what Soubrette meant. And I think it said, I'm trying to remember now, it said something like a pert maid, <laughs> <laughs> and, and you hardly ever, but I've seen since in reading old variety stuff, that the word is there, they sometimes use it, soubrette. Um, yes, she was, uh, uh, her name was really Kathleen Smith and she came from Peckham or somewhere, and um, she completely made up this story that she was Spanish and her name was Cavos Yandi and called for school, which was sniggeringly laughed at, the KY school, we had it on all our uniforms. Yes. And um, she was totally pretentious. Um, and she was so good to me, but I could never like her, which is an awful thing when someone is really good to you. I found that very interesting, actually, that you had such a clear sense as a child of, of of what mattered to you. Um, I'm sure that's been quite important in the success of your own career, that you didn't actually, you have never easily taken on board what you should be. You've always gone along with what feels right to you. Yes, my, that my instinct is enormous. I, like, it's just, mm -hmm. and I, I, I used to think you ought to like her, you really should like her. Yeah. I mean, she bought my, my first book, she paid for me because my life when I finally went to school age seven, the school was um, really rough and hard on me. Um, and I, I said, I'm not going there anymore. I'm just not going there anymore. And I only lasted a week. And she paid for me two guineas a term. I know it's not very much these days, but in those days it was a lot of money to go to this little um, sort of dame school. Which Can was, I, I had a particular moment of identification with you um, 
at this point in your story because being called Sally Vickers, I was sent to school by my mother in a pair of red knickers. And so I was tormented for the early years of my primary school with Sally Vickers got red knickers. And I think the reason, I hope I'm right about this, that you were so unhappy when you finally went to your ordinary state primary school was also to do with your knickers. Yes, indeed it was. And, uh, and, and maybe it wouldn't have been so bad if it hadn't been for the knickers. But my mother, being a dressmaker, would not spend money on knickers. All I wanted was the standard navy blue knicker. Me too. That's yes. what I longed for. Why did you have red ones? Well, for the same reason. My mother got a pair of red knickers in a jumble sale. and you know, no, They didn't it. know that our skirts were being pulled up by boys. <laughs> no. And so I had a, an array of um, knickers from all kinds of things, as long as it wasn't see-through. Um, and so I, I, the first day I went to school, I, I cried in the classroom because I didn't know what anyone was talking about. And they were already teasing me out in the, play, in the playground and I ran up some stairs to get away from them and they saw my knickers yes. and then I was just tortured. That and was the end. That was the end. Yes. And I lived most of my school days um, worried that people would see my knickers. And even at grammar school, um, I went to this wonderful grammar school, Latimer's at Edmonton, and um, even there, I used to dread forgetting my shorts. We all wore very good, like Bermuda shorts there. But if you forgot your shorts for gym or games, then you had to wear your knickers and they expected you to be a navy blue one. So, but, and I dreaded a day that yes. I'd forget it. So it was endlessly on uh, shorts, otherwise you'll show your knickers. And it went on being, it was, throughout my school days, it was a nightmare because my mother would not buy navy blue knickers for me. But in a way, I mean, I, I, another interesting moment for me was the gypsy that came to the door and gave a, a sort of prognostation about your career. I mean, along with a lot of hardship, which you obviously did have, uh, and which is, is, is described to us with um, no sentimentality whatsoever, there are also moments of great good luck. One is, I think, the moment when the gypsy comes to the door, which sends you off to the dancing school. And the other is your mother's unfortunate choice of knickers, which leads to you refusing to go to school and going to the... Getting the, sent to the very nice school. The rather <laughs> nice school, with the rather severe and exacting, but actually very encouraging, Miss Hall. Oh, she was wonderful. Yes. I mean this day, I can see that face. She really did look like Charlton Heston's younger sister. Yes. This wonderful bone structure <laughs> yes. and this enormous smile. And she was a wonderful woman. But she took to you, didn't she? I mean, another thing I noted throughout the book was that at various points, people take to you. Yes, they are my help. They, 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 without them, I, I think all of us have that throughout our lives. There is someone who steps in, but maybe I needed more help than most when I was young. Um, 
and I, I am so grateful to them, these people who stepped in. And I never understood, I, to this day, I'm worried about Madame Yandy, but um, the, the uh, Miss Hall was, I don't know, I'd have been such a thriller. I probably was a brat anyway, um, but I would have been appalling without Miss Hall's teaching. And uh, her, just, just, about, just about how I was. But I wanted to please her. Yes. It's these people you want to please. Yes. And the ones I wanted to please, I had to win round. And it went on, didn't it, with the with the next person who took you up and um, encouraged you in a way that went on being very important right into your adult life was Mr. Burton. Yes, E.J. E. Could you talk about him because I found him such an interesting character. I, I was, it was sad because since the book has come out, I've been sent a photograph of him at how he looked at the time when he was only 32. And I nearly got this uh, when the book came out, the only picture we had was him. He looks terrifying in the book. Well, he did look a bit terrifying always, but not to me once we'd exchanged and because um, he was our divinity teacher. And he had me reading the Bible very early on, and we had an exchange about that. But um, because I was already, who had told me to stress things with italics? I don't know. But of course, when it comes to the Bible, you, it doesn't really make sense. And so we had this talk about it, and he was immediately interested in me, just immediately. Um, but it was a long time before my mother realised, because by this time my mother wanted me to be the dancer that the gypsy had told her I was going yes. to be, the great ballerina. Well, she soon forgot ballerina. <laughs> it was just in the ordinary local horrible dancing class. Um, but my mother realised that I would do better as a dancer. There was no doubt I had to be a dancer because the gypsy had spoken and that was it. Yes. Um, but she realised I would do better because it was sort of, my mother got wind of the fact that we, we had, I wouldn't call it a Cockney accent, but it was called a Cockney accent in those days. It was more, um, it just was a very um, working class sound. And um, so she sent me to school with a note to say, would somebody teach me to speak properly? And um, Mr. Burton finally picked up that one woman said she'd do it for seven or six, for half an hour. And suddenly Burton stopped me in the corridor and said, I hear you want to learn to speak properly. And I said, well, my mum wants me to. And he said, well, I'll teach you for nothing, but you're to come when I ever, whenever I say so. And, and you, you There'll be no choice, no moaning about it, no, I can't come. You, you come every time I want to do it. And it, it turned out to be almost every night after school. So actually both Miss Hall and Mr Burton taught you discipline, would you say? Yes, absolutely. Mm. Um, Which is incredibly important, I think, in the act, well, in any life, actually, any artistic life. But I think as an actor, discipline is... Probably. Discipline is, is to me, terribly, terribly important. Yes. Um, 
and uh, he he was he was very strict but i didn't find out till years after i'd left school that two female teachers used to parade outside the art class where he taught me every single night and he must have known that and uh, i mean he even told uh, the boy that I was madly in love with at school, you know, and he mustn't go out with me because I was going to be an actress. And I'd, I was going to have a different life. He was going, he was determined to get me out of where I was. He, and he did it. And then when I became an actress, he never came to see me. Yeah, how do you explain that? I felt quite disappointed when I read that. I was always disappointed he didn't come, but I sort of understood it. He liked, he wanted to mould me. I can see that. And I was happy to be moulded. Mm. I mean, I had a wonderful time with him. Um, and I mean, he introduced me to everything. Paintings, you know, he'd bring in books and show me things. There's so much I learned that I just wouldn't have known without him. Mm. Um, he even brought in one day knives and forks and showed me how to set a table on which knife and fork was for what I mean and I needed all those things and that made me less nervous but um, he, he wanted to he was interested in taking young lives and molding them and setting them off on the path and if I was going to be an actress up on the stage doing a part that he hadn't had anything to do with then he just wasn't interested I mean I think he was very pleased I'm told he was very pleased and you never saw him? Yes, because for, oddly enough, he married someone younger than me, um, which was incredible. Um, and he made me the godmother. How interesting. So I saw him outside the theatre, but he didn't come and see me in the theatre. Ever. And we still talked about, we talked about theatre, but he just didn't come. And I would never say to somebody, will you come and see me? So between the two of us, it didn't happen. And so from there, from your Latimer school, was it he who persuaded your mother to let you stay on until you were 16? Is that right? Uh, yes. He, uh, well, you would have left sooner, wouldn't you? My friend Jan, yes, mm. was made to leave at 15. Mm. And people thought that it wasn't worth me staying on because I was coming bottom of the class every week so and it was him who he took me down uh, to a, a huge room in Edmonton it was isn't it? and he was so angry with me for one I once missed going to him mm. because I had a date with one of the well I didn't I, I was it was to do with the boys seeing the boys and he was so angry he took me to a huge typing pool and I will never forget being in the sort of there must have been like a gallery to it and looking down on all these heads of women sitting typing and he said that is what you will be doing if you don't work with me to be an actress don't think anything else it'll be that or serving at the fish shop very very good <laughs> I mean, it, and that scared me so much yes. that I went from bottom of the class to uh, a third, of the, uh, eighth from bottom. And then by the time I actually took 
what was then called matriculation, I got a seven out of eight subjects yeah. and two credits. So he, it was just him saying and showing me, just bashing me into it. It's just extraordinary, isn't it, the power of these individuals that, for good and ill that people have on our lives. Oh, especially teachers. Yes. I mean, teachers are so important. I can't bear it when I meet someone who seems a bit sort of non-inspirational, who tells me they're a teacher. I think, you've got one of the most wonderful jobs in the world. I know it's awful and hard work, but, but you are moulding. I think most of the... I think a huge percentage of children don't get what they need when they, they go might. home. Absolutely agree. And the saviours are the teachers. But, so when you went, you, you applied for the Royal College, College of Dramatic Parada, didn't you? Um, yeah. And didn't get in, which was a disappointment. Well, I, it was, I went for a scholarship. Yes. And there's sorry, only one sorry, scholarship. Yes. And I got down to the last three. Yeah. And I keep meaning, I keep meaning, and I will do it this week, to, to ring up Rada and say, who, who did, did get the scholarship it? that year? I was going to ask you that, because, I mean, it, that's another example of um, the, you know, the way thing, luck hangs on a kind of knife edge, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. It, but, uh, one hot on... Anyway, it wasn't too bad. Going to Guildhall didn't do me any harm. I mean, it was... Okay. But I was picking it up because you went, actually, to train as a teacher, which, in fact, you yes. didn't really want to do. Really I hated it. teaching. Yeah. I hated it. But then I was 19 and I was teaching 18-year-olds, you know. I mean, um, I was fine with the very young children. Mm. I quite liked that. But then it's so distressing to see them come back at nine and ten and just repeat everything stupid their parents have said and you, yes. you can't say your parents are wrong you mustn't it it's it's i find it distressing as they yes. get older because you see these wonderful little bugs growing up and then you see all this stuff being put on them and i anyway that upsets me but so how did, how did you get from this position onto the first um steps of that ladder that you had to climb to the position you're in now. I mean, maybe it's a good moment to talk about butlins. Oh, well, they, no <laughs> butlins. It took me a long time to get the butlins. butlins was, what do you um, want to fill in before you get to butlins? Well, I did. I, the thing is that I, when I got to drama school, I simply caught on very quickly to the fact that although I was on a teaching course, all the drama Every, anyone to do with drama was just pushed down into the basement and no one would notice if I went to the other classes and started getting into plays. And so I just, a lot of, quite a few of us did that. Um, I was the only one who actually became an actress, but quite a lot of yes. us did the plays. Um, and then, because when I was 12 years old and had taken myself, because Mr Burton had taken me to see King John in Regent's Park, and I had written off my own bat, um, to, with nobody knowing, to Robert Atkins, who ran the company, saying, I would be better than the Prince Arthur you've got in this. Although I did think everything else was wonderful, but I didn't think he was any good, and I would be better. And I 
Gorman had a very funny um, interview with Robert and he said, yes, actually, you would be better, but why don't you go to drama school? This was when I was 12. Why don't you go to drama school and then come and see me and I'll give you a job? And it just so happened, this was sheer luck, that he was um, judging the Shakespeare Prize at the end of drama school and he gave me the prize for Phoebe and As You Like It and he, and he gave me a job straight away. That was exceptionally lucky. But by the time I left drama school, I thought I was all set because I'd managed to get into Banger Rep in Northern Ireland for a season and I went straight into Regent's Park. So I, I thought, I, I thought, well, I'm here, I've arrived. And then there were the terrible, terrible years leading up to like, I'd done rep everywhere and then I couldn't find anything. It was in another long, terrible gap of no work. And I wasn't allowed to sit at home at all. You know, I had to become, I was a, a, everything, a, a, an usherette in the cinema, an usherette in the theatre, a shop girl, worked at the post office. I wasn't allowed to just be at home and not work. Well, you I, had to contribute, didn't you? You yeah, were obliged to contribute. Yes, I was to obliged. My mother, if I'd taken any kind of money from anyone, would have killed me. Um, uh, I mean, from Social Security. I don't know what it's called there. The dole, she called it. Um, and my, I, my father was doing a little job. He changed jobs in near Regent Street. And it, he, he'd noticed, he was trying to encourage my mother um, to try butlins. But my mother thought that butlins was common. Yes. My mother thought an awful lot of things were common. My mother thought butlins was common too, yes. So, so um, he said, he was trying to encourage her, and I heard him say to her, well, and, and showing off to me too, they have a repertory company there at Butlins. But no, she wouldn't go. And I thought, oh, repertory company, maybe I should try there. And so I simply went into the display store about the holidays and said, what about the repertory company? And they said, ring this number. And I was given a job without even doing an audition. It was that level and it wasn't very good. But it was a bit of luck as well, in a way, wasn't it? It was a huge piece of luck because <laughs> I met my first husband. Exactly. I mean, that's what amused me about the story. There's a description of you really slugging from pillar to post, trying to get work, trying to get an agent, doing all kinds of jobs, getting the odd bit of rep. And then you finally winch yourself up to taking a job at Butlins and there something again changes a bit. Yes, again, an enormous piece of luck. I mean, when you think of, think of, you know, I could have been in a company where nobody was bearable, you know, bearable. But Julian was, I don't think I could have had my career without Julian, if I hadn't met Julian. Perhaps we should just give him a surname in case. Julian Glover, I don't think I could have, I don't think I'd have lasted I, I just couldn't get off the ground. I think you would, actually, but I can see that that was... That's what it looks like to me mm. then. He's kept... He, you um, thank him in your book for keeping a record of your career, and I got the impression that you yourself had probably not, and that Julian, from whom you've parted very amicably, finally, has continued in a way to support you, but 
it, it clearly was a real love match. He, re he I, I really, I can always cry now because I'm having lunch with him and his wife on Sunday. Uh, they, they, I don't, I never know what I would have done without him. Mm. And he, I mean, it was a whole different life. His family, yes. I fell in love with his whole family. Um, and But he was so supportive. I mean, I, when we were married, was terribly embarrassed by him because he used to cut out any review that even mentioned we were walking on, you know, and then stuck it in a book. And then when, I can remember one night, he put it on a coffee table and we had a director around and the co coffee, then the, the director said, looked at it, just lifted up the, the cover of it and said, Oh, putting our reviews out, are we? And I thought, I knew it. I know that's a terrible thing to do, and I'm so embarrassed he did it. But he didn't mind. He thought it was a very good idea to do it, and he gave it to me as an 80th birthday present. That all my reviews, anything that I was mentioned into, right up to when we split, and even a few after we split too. I found that very, very moving, and actually. Your, the account of your married life together is very moving and, and very heartening, actually, that there was such solidarity between you as, as a couple, even though uh, you had to try and pretend to be a housewife, which you weren't really cut out to be. No, luckily Julian was jolly good about it. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, you were also doing something you didn't really want to do, and it didn't, you didn't sound at all resentful of the fact that sometimes he got parts and sometimes you hadn't got a part. And he seemed always to be encouraging people to take you on and... Well, he did, he did. He, he was very brave about getting... He was always pulling me on board and saying... I, I mean, I really... I don't, I, I don't think I would have done it without him, but... Um, and he, he, he was simply terrific. And... You know, sometimes I look back, I think, why did we divorce? Why did we, you know? But uh, that, no, he has a perfect, uh, he's wonderful, his wife. So, uh, and, and I, I just, I think it's very difficult to be married to an actress. So I, I think, I think it's very difficult to marry so young. Um, and you seem to have made a jolly good job of it, actually, the two of you. I mean, we had a nice time. Yes. We really had a nice time. And you supported each other. I mean, I don't believe you wouldn't have done it without him, but it's very nice to hear you say that. Um, so often people slag off their exes, and you're the, quite the reverse. But you moved through him to Stratford, didn't you? Yeah. That also had an interesting development in your own acting career. Yes, well, Stratford is the mecca for, yeah, for any actor. Uh, what was then, um, and you, you, you know, if you'd arrived at, and it wasn't even the Royal Shakespeare then, it was the Memorial Theatre of Stratford-upon-Avon. Oh, yes, right. yes, in that rather ugly building. Yes, a very ugly building, and the thought of being there, and he he was picked out um, because because I was I, I was sharp enough to say they've got Michael Redgrave. Uh, this season, and he's very tall. I think he's six foot six, 
they're going to need very tall walk-ons. Yes. You're six foot two, get up there now and just walk. And, you know, and, and then he was obviously good enough to be in the company and he crawled his way up. I mean, he, he went there as the lowest of the low and he, well, he ended up in his life there playing huge parts, oh, but that was not, not later. Then he just um, was playing tiny parts and then he went and simply begged Glen to take me into the company because they, they had lost a lot of actors for various reasons that season. But I mean, that was an amazingly brave thing to do because Glen Bangshaw was pretty terrifying mm. and had, we all knew had a terrific temper. And um, so he got me into the company. And what parts did you play there, remind me? Well, hardly anything, actually. But right at the no, beginning, I had a, a huge piece of luck in that, um, that there was the girl playing Audrey in As You Like It was in hospital. Yes. And her, this was only two weeks after he, Glen Bymshaw said, she can, okay, she can be in the company, but she's not going to open her mouth and she's not going to get any understudies. So I was just too happy I was going to be on the stage. I was going to be there. I was going to go in with the, the stage door every night with him and not round the front and be an usherette. And uh, as I said, this girl was in hospital. And then we shared a sort of house with another couple who were walk-ons too. And the boy came in one night and said, uh, knocked on the door late at night and said, and Julian was the only one with a car, and said, um, Liz is ill could you take us to hospital and they all went off and i suddenly thought wait a minute liz is playing audrey and she's the understudy so who's going to play audrey tomorrow i thought well it won't do any harm to learn it so yes. it's pretty easy to learn short part so i sat and learned it and then i got up very early the next morning and just hung around the notice board and then i said to uh, finally to someone who might know something. Um, I know Liz went to hospital last night. Uh, does anyone know if she's coming out? And he said, no, they kept, they're keeping her in for a day. Um, so I said, so who's going to play Audrey tonight? Then he said, well, I guess somebody will have to go on with the book. And I said, well, you know, I've played it. Complete lie. Yes, I have you said, um, <laughs> oh, have you? I said, yes, only at drama school, but I do know it. He said, you come with me. And they went and phoned Glen Bamshaw, and he said, oh, right, that's <laughs> I'm sure he was quite irritated that it was me. And then, simply because I made myself look ugly for the yes. part, and the other two had just made themselves look as, as adorable as possible and just put a smudge on their faces, I thought, Audrey, she's a goat herd. She's supposed to look ghastly, you know. And there's, there are jokes about her looks, and she says how plain she is, and everybody else says how plain she is. Then Patrick Weimark, who was playing Touchstone, was suddenly able to get all his laughs. Yes. So he was so thrilled with me that at the end of the curtain call, he kissed, he kissed my hand in the, in the lineup, and then Dame Peggy Ashcroft took my hand and walked me forward for a solo. I couldn't, I'm almost crying now at the moment because I'm, I'm, you know, having just been allowed to walk on the stage and there you were taking a solo call. 
And I did only play the one night because Liz did get better immediately, sadly. Um, yes. <laughs> but um, but I, 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 it moved. What happened was the company then accepted me. Yes. I mean, I think some people were getting a bit irritated. Oh, are people's wives coming in here now, you know. Um, and I was totally accepted then. And it's an example, isn't it, of the discipline? You know, you applied, you, you sat up and learnt the part which you'd never done before. Yeah. Um, and you thought about the part properly, yes, as you do on other occasions that you describe in the book. And you did something which I always notice in actresses. Um, I'm not going to say actors, I know we're supposed to say it about both sexes now, but actresses who are prepared to make themselves look ugly, who are prepared to forego any kind of glamour, always win my respect and it strikes me throughout your career you've never bothered about anything other than getting to the truth of the character yes i have i would be i would tell the truth and say i have nothing but contempt for an actress who doesn't have that i i agree feeling. with you yeah um you know it seems incredibly stupid to me not, yes not to do everything you can that is that part Yes. And if that means you've got to have a whatever, uh, yeah, you, you, must, you must do it and do it with will. And not, I cannot, particularly I can't bear when they're supposed to look dirty and scruffy, just a nice little smudge of yeah. something on the nose. Or yeah. I really can't bear it. So, um, yes, I'm, I'm very strict about that with myself and everybody else. It, it, it would be nice to hear, I think, for people to hear about your other thoughts about acting, because one of the other things I noticed, and I must say I agree with you about, though I'm not the best judge of this, is you were a great believer in simply learning the part, going through the part, going through the part again and again, the, the, the power of repetition. You're not a great fan, I think, of, um, you know, let's all imagine we're a tree, or it would be good to hear you a bit on that. Well, it's just that, no, I'm not a great fan of doing a lot of improvisation. And it's quite fun. You, you could, I don't mind doing it to break the ice or, um, you know, actors have to become very close very quickly. And I, so I don't mind it for that reason. But to waste time when you, we, we have a comparatively short rehearsal time in this country i mean other countries have a longer yes rehearsal time but mostly you get four weeks to do a play and really that is not enough time and you must spend as far as i'm concerned every second of it working on the script and anyway it is the script the play that is the important thing that's where you're getting your news from, from the words that are written mm. and you're trying to glean from it all the time. So to go off and uh, say, oh, they went to Brighton for a day, so let's all go to Brighton. No, mm. um, we don't need to go to Brighton for the day if the script says we go to Brighton. All those things can be useful to break down barriers between actors mm. if they're there. And sometimes I realise that, that sometimes I realise it's handy, 
But no, all the directors I like are the ones who, who are looking at the script the whole time. And when I finally worked with Peter Hall, it was wonderful, because every other actor hated it, but he simply doesn't look out from the script for two or three weeks. But speaking of Peter Hall, your first encounter with Peter Hall was not so happy, oh, was no. it? <laughs> it was disastrous. Um, it brought out all the worst in me. Um, no, I was ASM at um, Oxford, and I'd gone there, you know, absolutely within my contract, it said ASM and small parts. And then the director who'd given me that contract soon left. And then we had various directors came and no one gave me anything, just thought, oh, she's the ASM. And then when Peter Hall came, I knew he was a young man and I knew he'd been born in Tottenham or he lived for a while in Tottenham. And I thought he was going to be like me. I yes. thought he was one of, you know, was going to be tremendously helpful. A kindred spirit. Yes. And then again, play after play, and he didn't give me anything. And I got into a fury one night. And we, in those days, you used to dress rehearse till three or four in the morning. Nobody thought anything of it. And um, the dress rehearse was uh, uh, tedious and awful, and the ASMs had to stand in for people. And he suddenly got annoyed with us doing. He'd asked us to put the scene back to the scene before because he wanted to do the scene change again. It had all gone wrong. And we were putting the scene back and we were taking he thought too long and he shouted out oh come on i asked for this hours ago why aren't you ready and i just flipped and i walked out onto the stage and walked down to the footlights and i said something along the lines of if you knew anything about the theater you would know that you can't just put the lighting board back to what it was before. It takes quite a long time. They obviously didn't teach you at Cambridge, so perhaps you'd like to come up here and learn what to do. And I walked off into the wings and the stage manager said to me that that was disgraceful and you must get down into the stalls immediately and apologise to her. So I went down into the stalls and I said, I've just been told I've been rude to you. And he said, well, you are a very sullen girl. And I said, well, so would you be if you come here to play parts and you won't give me anything, nobody's given me anything. And he said, well, if you don't get parts here, maybe you should go somewhere else. And then, so then that he'd sacked me. But you met him again and he didn't immediately recognise you. No, he didn't recognise me for a whole season at Stratford. Until? I got away with it. In <laughs> fact, he gave me special little speeches and things. And I was, I couldn't believe it. And I'd completely forgotten about it when he finally, I'm sitting next to Dorothy Tutin, I was understudying her, and she came and sat next to me. That was the dangerous thing, she shouldn't have done that. And in the middle of giving notes to Dotty, he suddenly turned and fixed it. And he said, you're that girl. That rude girl, didn't he say? No, he just said, you're, you're that girl. girl. <laughs> you're that girl. And suddenly, I wasn't allowed to go into rehearsals anymore. But I don't know whether that was Peter 
Dottie, who for some reason had taken against me. Anyway, it was very unpleasant. And I had to understudy without going into rehearsals, which was very sad. And That's horrible. very, very unfair. But you did eventually. But eventually, yes. But when, when he saw me being good in other things with other people, and I was much older and doing rather well. But then I lost my temper again. But then it was, it, I had been waiting hours in a freezing theatre and I didn't know he'd just had his final big row with Leslie Caron and they were breaking up so he was in a terrible state I was in a terrible state and he was just reading me because he thought he was going to lose Glenda Jackson as Ophelia and everybody had told him that you know I was the next best thing and um so I I, I read very badly because it wasn't even the bit that I thought I was doing, he asked me to do. And I heard him say at the end of it, oh, that really wasn't very good. And I just exploded. I said, how do you expect me to be good? I've been in a freezing theatre all morning. I've waited something like three or four hours for you. And I said, and then you tell me to do a scene that we, you, you didn't say. And I was supposed to be reading it with David Warner and he's not here. To be good. And then he came down to the footlights and said to me, um, There's something about you and I that, or something along these lines, there's something about you and I we just seem to uh, not to hit it off. Why don't we both take a deep breath and why don't you do you know, what you want to do and why don't we try again? And I I did, and then he, at the end he said, that was much better, and if Glenda doesn't do it, I would like to have you. And then finally, when I, I didn't, Glenda did it sadly, because I would have loved to have played. Um, You'd have been a marvellous mad Ophelia. Ophelia, I really would have loved to have played yes. that. I played it in the end in Chicago, but uh, no, no, that's fine. But um, I never played it in London. Um, but then finally, in my late fifties, he asked me to play Paulina in The Winter's Tale. I remember that, Paulina. Mm. And um, we went all over the world with that yes. production. It was his last, and I adored working with him. It was a great production. It was a great production. It, it was a very good one. Tim Pickett-Smith and uh, Geraldine James were really very good. And we had a wonderful time. I think I saw you I think the very first time I saw you, you were Viola. Did you see the one, yes. the, the old, the second one at the Old Vic, I think you would have seen? No, I think, I think it was, no, I think it was you the first. You saw the first one? I think so, I, I was very, very young. young. to see that. You must have been very young. But I've got a story to tell you about that, because my father was a great fan of Dorothy Tootin, and I said I preferred that, that, and my father, my father obviously fancied Dorothy Tootin. <laughs> People did. <laughs> um, um, I saw you in that, and then the next time I saw you was actually on television, and it was uh, you were Maggie Clayhanger. Oh, in the first, very first time. Which I also yeah. watched with my father because he's, he's, my very first years were spent in the potteries. Um, oh. And I remember that uh, production. Very well, but I also remember watching you in the square by Marguerite Duras. On the television? On the telly, yes. God, that, 
That is amazing because you must have been very young. For I, I, all I've of those. Not, I, I think I would have been about 12, 13, something like that. About 61, yeah, 60. Yeah, I, worked out, I just started secondary school. I know it was my first year in secondary school. I wonder what made you watch it. I watched a lot of things with my dad. We were very close. He had very good taste in literature. Oh, so he would have been interested in Well, he life. loved Arnold Bennett, and so we saw the whole play hanging. I, mean, I tried to get it again, to look at it again. Can't find it. But what I remember is you were in it and Judy Gent Dench was in it. Yes, that's right. Yes, Ju Julie was my big play partner, I think. But, um, but didn't you. Um, was it all done live? Well, I made that yes, up. it was live. Yes. Oh, God. It was so, <laughs> it was so exciting when it was live and terrifying. Yes. Terrifying. Yeah. We used to, most of us were young, only Violet Carson was the only old person, I think, in the, when there was a man who was older too. But there were a lot of, I can't remember his name, Brian, someone who was sweet too. And, but there were about five of us young ones that used to get completely hysterical, you know, because when it's live, they are moving furniture out of shot into another. So a lot is going on while you're doing the scene. And sometimes the furniture doesn't go down in the right place. And then somebody goes to sit somewhere and there isn't a chair. And it, it was so exciting. I, I can remember... For some reason, Judy's father calling her on a on must have been on the main a, a, a telephone in the studio afterwards, and we were all laughing hysterically so much that she couldn't even speak. She just kept laughing at what I was asking her things to say, and she was, and we, we didn't we we laughed a great deal on that show, but it was all live. And the first ones of an age of kings were live too. Yes, you were also in that. That was a great series, wasn't it? Yeah. I just want to go back a little bit though to the moment we offended Peter Hall because you also had that experience with George Devine, didn't you? Or is it yes. Andrew Devine? Devine. He was always George Devine. When Alec Guinness took over and Yes. Well, Alec I mean, it was very interesting to me very important to finally to read those notices um, because obviously, you know, everybody adores George and if you say anything against him, you're, you, you know, uh, I'm lucky nobody sent me a rude letter about saying anything against George, but that was my experience of him and I had to say it. Um, he did some wonderful things. He was wonderful to young writers. Mm. But I really, uh, he, was, he should have been like an impresario more, because I don't think he was that good a director. You but, disagreed with him about your part, I think. And um, Well, he, what happened was that he, he suddenly said he'd like to see me. I was just a, Julian was playing a lot at the Royal Court. I was just Julian's wife. But I had done enough then for people mm. to know a little of what I'd done. Tony Richardson knew me from Stratford. Yes. And but only little, only tiny, tiny things. And suddenly I was told that George wanted to see me for this part in Exit the King. And um, I, I, I read it and loved 
the play straight away. I thought, what a marvellous play. And I thought, this is interesting because I can see that some people would think that this old retainer, that not, she's not called an old retainer, she's just called uh, maid. the maid, yes. I think. Mm. Um, and I, I thought some people will think it should be old. Anyway, I went in to see him and very quickly I realised that he expected it to be played old. And I said, oh no, Mr. Devine, I really, um, d I think that's wrong. I think it's much more moving if she's young because her life is finished. And if you see an old lady and her life is finished and there's nothing to it, then that isn't as sad as seeing a young woman in her 20s and know, know that there's no future she has no future so he said uh, i mean he said no i really did see it as old so i got up to leave i said thank you very much for seeing and then somebody distracted him and then he suddenly called out to me all right we'll try it and then i played it for a week and he kept giving me directions to play an old woman he kept saying no bend your back no you yes. don't drag your um you drag the mop and I, and I just was quietly not not obeying him, you know. I, I I didn't say anything. And then on Friday morning, he said to me, "Look, it's not working out, and I'm I'm going to sack you." He said, "I'm going to get somebody old." In. So I said, oh, "All right." And he said, "Would you mind?" I was very upset. He said, "Would you mind coming back this afternoon because I can't get anyone new until Monday." And I went off and had a very sad, I always remember it was sausage and mash, lunch by myself. Oh, you might as well go back, there's no point in being rude, go back. And when I got back in the afternoon, Alec Guinness was waiting at the door of the rehearsal room. And he said to me, I believe George snapped you this morning. Yes. yes. And he said, well, I've made him change his mind because I think you're going to be very, very good. So how do you feel about it if I direct you and George just takes no notice of you at all? And so I took all my directions, and nearly all my stuff was with Alex. And, um, and then they did this awful thing to me when I got to um, Edinburgh, which was our first date before coming into the Royal Court. I went into my dressing room. I, you can't believe how stupid people are to think you're going to swallow these things. And standing at my place in my dressing room was a wig stand with a grey wig on it. <laughs> and I was just furious. I thought, they're insane. Well, the designer, Jocelyn Herbert, was uh, George Devine's partner. Oh. I thought, he's still trying it on. So I took the wig and I went into the nearest, I remember it was a Sunday afternoon, there was a terrible hairdresser's open in Edinburgh and I, I went in and said, I, I want a flame red hair dye. <laughs> and I, they gave me a spray can and I went back and I did the whole wig flaming red and then I put the wig on and I went on to the dress rehearsal that evening not one word was said 
not one word from anyone. And I thought, well, now what's going to happen? Am I going to be wearing a flame red wig? And the next night I went in and there was a turban <laughs> on them. And so I thought, oh, all right, all right, I'll give in on a turban. Yeah. But nobody's going to win on this. I'm playing her young and that's it. And then the notices came out, and I reread them for the sake of the book. I, I reread all of them. I worked with Julian had kept them too. And um, I hadn't realised at the time that, that they were very much said that George Bean hadn't got what the play was about, mm. and that Alec Guinness had. And I got some very nice notices as well, and a prize for it. So. Uh, that was totally due to Alex's direction. Well, I don't think Alex would have picked you up and uh, done this for you had he not seen you're really very good. It wasn't he? Wasn't he, he had a lot of faith in me? He did have a lot of faith in you, and actually, I mean, again, so did Laurence Olivier. You've had people of great, oh yes, talent and gift pick you out. Quite remarkable, and I mean, you, it's an extremely modest memoir, I should say. And nowhere do you boast at all. In fact, sometimes I think you're a little bit too self-denigrating. But you've had some very important supporters. It's quite noticeable. Um, Tell us about Laurence Olivier and the chauffeur, because that's a oh, very good story. <laughs> oh, I simply was so excited I to be in the play with him, and. Um, it was sad. I think it's his only failure. Um, and he was, uh, it was a play that had been done with Leonard Rossiter up in the north somewhere, I can't remember and where. And he, Leonard Rossiter, it was a new play by a new playwright and Leonard Rossiter had had amazing reviews. And then, of course, they wanted to bring it to London. Everybody says, oh, well, why isn't Leonard playing it? But that isn't what happens in the theatre. They need a name and these producers and everything. So, Larry had agreed to do it because it gave the new writer a chance because it wouldn't have come in then. Leonard didn't become famous until after that. Um, he was a genius. Um, but Larry had a really good go at it. But they didn't. Anyway, we opened and he had bad reviews, but I was, um, I was totally uh, mad about him. And I used to peer from my dressing room, which was above his, down to see who was coming in at night. And of course, everybody turned up. I saw everybody up there. And then I used to work it that I was always walking down the stairs at the same time as him. When as he said, right here I go. And then he had a car every night to Victoria to take him down to Brighton. And so, of course, one night um, he said to me. Um, would a lift to Victoria be of any help to you? And I said yes, although it wasn't at all. And um, at night after night, I was in the car with Larry as he went to Victoria. And it was the time when he was planning the, the National Theatre, right? You know, when it was starting at Chichester and coming in. And uh, in fact, in the, you know, we talked about lots of things and he said there's a part for you um, and I was going to be in the workhouse donkey with Peter O'Toole and um, everything was fine and dandy and then one night as I got in the car 
Um, he said, he so suddenly said to me, where is it that you live, darling? And I said, Bolton Gardens. And he said, well, this, it was out of my mouth, you know, I should have said Victoria. And he said, well, then this lift is no use to you at all. And I had to think. And I said, oh, yes, well, um, most evenings I go to some great friends of ours who live in Victoria. And, and I nearly always drop in there for a drink. And so he said, well, then I've forgotten the name of his driver. Uh, let's call it Bob. Bob. He said, Bob will take you there, straight to the door. You shouldn't be walking about Victoria. And I said, no, 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 I did, uh, uh, no, no I don't. honestly, I'm, I'm fine. I've been doing it and it's just fine. And he said, no, no, I won't hear a word about it. Bob will take you to the door. So I, I was in such a state, I couldn't listen properly to what he was telling me. And that night, he had to tell me that he'd had to give in with Peter O'Toole because Peter had fallen in love with the actress he was working <laughs> with at that time. And she was going to be in the workhouse donkey. And at the moment, he couldn't find a part for me. So I wouldn't be opening with the National Theatre. And I was in such a state, I do remember saying, to actually saying to him, oh, it doesn't matter, I wasn't that keen anyway. I, I, because you say such silly things, oh, I do, when you're sort of nervous. And all I could think of was, where, where am I going to go in Victoria? Where am I, who can I wake up at 11.30 at night? And who can I, whose door can I ring on? I must know someone in Victoria. Anyway, he disembarked Victoria and his chauffeur took him to the train. And I thought, I'd, I'd, I'd just tell him I really can't do it by myself. I'd be polite, stay here till, you know, I won't just disappear. And the driver came back. And I, I said, no, honestly, I, 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 can, I like walking out. And he said, the boss would be so angry with me if I didn't take you to the door. And there's nothing for it but to get back in the car. And he said, well, where are we going? What's the address? And I said, do you know, I've never known the address. I just know where it is. I just walk there. And he said, well, tell me where you walk. Where, where, where are we going? And then I just started going. I remember the first thing he said, is it left or right now? I said, right. And we just went straight back into the station again. <laughs> I've never forgotten that. That was the first wrong thing. And then there was this journey with me raking my mind. Who do I know who lives around here? What can I do? What can I do? What can I do? And it was absolutely awful. And he was saying, not along here, is it? He kept saying, it's funny, you just don't know where it is. And then finally, I saw what looked, turned out to be a news, but it was, I could see it was a very narrow turning down into it. And I thought, he won't want to mark his car. That's too narrow. And I said, oh, it's here. Oh, stop, stop. It's here. It's here. Uh, uh, it's down here. Um, and you uh, just leave me on this corner. That's fine. I'm taking you right to your friends. I'm not leaving you here. It did look a bit seamy where we were going. Um, I've forgotten the name of the place it turned out to be. Um, anyway, it was a lot of Ovang. Actually, it was sort of high below. There was a muse there, but there were some high buildings as well, the backs of shops. And um, I thought, because we're going to have to brazen this up. And 
I saw there was one light on, there was one light on in the news by now, it must have been like well after midnight, and the door opened and I thought, okay, you go for that woman. And she was saying goodnight to a man, and then he was walking towards me, and so I, I went, hi, hi, and she shut the door, so, and the man sort of just walked past me, looking at me as if, who is this woman who's shouting hi, hi to nobody? And as he passed me, I saw that he had a meat packers thing on his head, which they wore at Smithfield, which was a, a, like a cap on your head, and then it goes all the way down your back to carry the carcasses. Oh, God. And then I thought, you've, got, you've just got, you've got to, to go and knock on the door. So I, I was out of the car by that time, and he said, are you sure you're in the right place? <laughs> and I said, oh, yes, yes, that was my friend. That was my friend at the door there. And I went and banged on the door. And he was creeping past in the car. And then he just got past and the woman opened the door. And I just said, just speak to me, say anything. Just speak to me and smile. And she said, what's going on? And she <laughs> took a step out to look up. And I saw he just turned. He saw me speaking to her and he turned, he was like, and I said, thank you very much. I was being bothered by that man in the car. And I just felt I had to. And then I got the taxi and went home. And then, of course, by the time I got home, I'd remembered that I wasn't going to be a member of the National Theatre Company. And I, I told Julian the whole thing, and we, I bet we laughed and cried it's between it's us. It's just the sort of thing I would have done. I'm so sympathetic. It's such a wonderful story. Well, you think, you know, lots of people said to me, but why didn't you just say to the driver, I'd be in line? But you too, can't. It's too late. You've got too long into your own story. Yeah. It's too late. Too late. If, if I put a, a loaded gun at your head, which would be your... Which would be the two roles that you'd both most like to be remembered for? Oh. No, it's rather difficult I, I because there's so about many. Being remembered. I remember. I do remember a man at Chichester once <laughs> saying to me from an audience thing. I think I was playing Queen Elizabeth at the time. I do remember him saying to me, "What would you like to be remembered for?" And I said, "For being good fun at parties." Which <laughs> <laughs> you certainly the same now, but you've been specific. Um. I don't know. I I don't think of you know. I'm just stunned that you saw me do that. You saw me do that. I um. I've seen you in almost everything. I think. Oh, how wonderful! That's that's wonderful of you. I mean, I don't know if it was so wonderful for you, but uh, um. Well, maybe uh, I should ask which of the two, which which of the parts you've most enjoyed. Is that easier? Well, weirdly, one of the parts I've enjoyed more than anything else. That I really did love playing, and I, all of them I've loved playing, if you know, was the Night of the Iguana. Mm. I was very nervous playing American, but that was a very upper class American, that woman. Yes. It was, lo I loved playing that. Also, when I got it right, I did a very bad Rosalind at Stratford on Avon here, and I was um, really upset that. I'd got one of the 
great, I think, almost the greatest part written for a woman by Shakespeare. And I, it had got messed up. Not necessarily my fault, but it was it, the, the production was no good and most of us in it were no good. But the beginning, we got better by the end because we'd worked ourselves into it. But I was so upset, but it so happened that two, one year later, having had this um, disaster of a production, I was offered Rosalind again at Stratford, Connecticut in America. And then I had a marvellous director who showed me immediately exactly what I'd done wrong <laughs> the, 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 the first time and did just the kind of production of it that I myself would have liked to have gone to see. It was all Watto, whereas we did it totally modern dress. When the disastrous one was in total modern dress. And... Um, but this one we did, and it's so much easier to play the men when you're in knee breeches and things and not in, and it was just, and I had the most wonderful American cast, and it was a joyous summer. Do you feel that this sort of emphasis whereby in any modern production it's absolutely necessary that the male lead must wear a leather jacket? Oh, it's, it's so perhaps, tedious, It's isn't perhaps it? a little tedious, yes. It's just tedious. It really, I'm afraid the RSC were really um, guilty of that because yes. they were the ones that started the black T-shirts and the leather jackets this, the, 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 the compulsory leather jackets. I think people enjoy um, a bit of, you know, I, I think people, oh, well, I don't think that you have to put these plays from the past in modern dress so that the young people are going to understand them. I think the young people are a great deal brighter than that. I quite agree. And there's no necessity to do that. I don't say you always have to do it. I mean, I feel slightly sorry for the men when it's done totally Elizabethan because you have to have terrific legs <laughs> to get away with those tights and pouchy knickers. And, um, so I, I, I don't say that you always have to do the Elizabethan, but, um, but they just can look. It's very beautiful, and I don't think the fashion today is the greatest ever. Yeah. In fact, we're rather dull at the moment. Yeah. I don't want to finish without saying something about your own part in the writing of, of plays and scripts. So I believe you co-created a very successful series called Upstairs, Downstairs, with your friend Jean. Yes, it was that was that was huge fun. I mean, um, and, and out of the you know, it was amazing that it was chosen. I, I I must say I've never. It's only recently that I've actually seen all the episodes because it's been on Talking Pictures, and I've at last caught up after all these years <laughs> on what all the. Um, I think, I mean, I'm very proud of it because mm. that idea that we went, because the idea we went with originally was that it was to be only, we used to watch the Foresight Saga mm, and I everybody loved. was mad about the Foresight yeah. Saga and we were too. And then one night we were talking, we never know which one of us said it and we were gabbling on about it afterwards and, 
And one of us said, yes, it's all very well, but if we had been alive at that time, from our backgrounds, we would have been the maids upstairs that you never see doing all the cleaning, painting, getting up at six, you know, getting up at five, scrubbing everywhere, lighting fires without anybody hearing you. And so, it would, and then we, we started talking and saying, it's so weird, you never get the play about the, the mm. servants. Very good observation. So we thought, and there had, there had only been one play about it, the maid, Jeanne's The Maids. And we, you know, we wanted to splash, uh, yeah, a, a yeah. proper series. So we went with the idea of doing it only about the servants originally. And then the producers we went to, who had 13 ideas that morning, and, and we shoved ours in at the last minute. We didn't even know how to do a, um, uh, I've forgotten what they're called now. Yes. I, we didn't, we had to be taught how to do it and write it out and all the characters and everything. We had to be taught. And um, we shoved it in at the last minute and it was chosen. But then we went in to talk to them and they said, look, it's a great idea, but we don't think it'll really work because the servants imitated the family so we're going to have to put the family in so we were a bit ungenerous first about that and saying can't you make those parts much smaller <laughs> but it it of course it evened out in the end it was and it was upstairs and downstairs so um i'm very proud of it now because mm. uh without upstairs downstairs and then because of that when um Oh, what's his name? Bob Altman uh, did Gosford Park. Yes. He asked Tom Stoppard to write the script. And Tom said, no, he said, but he, uh, and Bob said to him, I want Upstairs Downstairs meets Agatha Christie. And Tom said, that's not really my thing. <laughs> <laughs> so why don't you ask? the girls, as we intended to be called then, the girls who did Upstairs Downstairs. So he came and asked us, and I didn't have the courage to do it. Jean wanted to terribly. So we said we'd have a go, and then I didn't really have a go, and uh, we, we did a treatment, and he wanted to talk to us, and he wanted me to fly to the Dallas or somewhere where he was filming, and. And I said, I don't like flying. And I, ma I made a lot of trouble about it. So in the end, it went to Julian. Julian was asked. Mm. Um, Julian Fellows. And um, it, in, it just is a nice little secret in my head these days when I think there would be no Downton Abbey. No, I was going to say, you said it absolutely. No, I, because I, I, nobody... And I'm very proud that we had that idea. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. It certainly set a trend. And I also want just you to say a little bit about your play, about Vita and... Oh, Vita and Virginia. I don't think of that as a play. And I did ask them on the posters not to put it as a play. But people do love it as a play, and it's done all over the world. It is a lovely play. Um, um, so, you know, I must accept it. I didn't... It was intended as a sort of Sunday evening bit of entertainment when I did it. It was to amuse me. I didn't want to do poetry. Actors are asked to do poetry evenings an mm. awful lot. And I thought, how many people really start like sitting listening to poetry? It would be much more interesting to do. So I did it as a little two-hander 
for two actresses to go and do somewhere for charity, really. And then it grew. And I, then I did it. At, did I do it at Charleston? Yeah, I did it at Charleston, where I love to you go. You did do it at and, um, and then everybody said, this is great. Why don't you do it? And um, so I trimmed and tucked and tapped and rewrote. And um, yes. And also, I love our second series that Jean and I did, um, The House of Elliot. And that I would have loved to have come back because that would easily work today. I think it could have come back. Um, uh, but there have been a few bites and a few things, but it's never worked out. Yeah, so it's, uh, I, I've always loved sort of playing with, if I've liked something, thought, oh, well, I mean, I'm sure Virginia Woolf's going to be waiting for me if there's an afterword. <laughs> The rolling pin to go because um, I've played about with her. Stuff. No, I think I Outrageous. think she'd love it, and I think it really brings us to back to the beginning, which is that you're you obviously do have a great feeling for language. You know, I mean that's the first thing I noticed when I actually met you: your feel for language and your respect for language. But I'm just going to conclude with on a slightly different note because it amuses me so much and it cheers me so much as an older woman. Just tell people who don't know about this. How you turned up and Colin Powell. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> I was asked to do this film in South Africa, but I didn't want to do it at all. Um, I don't know, I was not feeling like working at all. And I was, I was about to be 70 and I was glum. And um, finally this director didn't say no. Oh, such a nice one, I can't think of his name. Um, he wrote Chinatown. Anyway, Robert. Um, he said, well, would, would you please just come and talk to me about that? I thought they're being so insistent about this thing that I don't want to do. Anyway, I went to talk to him and he said, well, the trouble is Colin wants you. And I said, Colin who? <laughs> and he said, Colin Farrell. And I said, I'm sorry, I don't know who that is. And he said, um, well, can I give you some of his work? I, I said, yes. So he gave me Colin's film, I think it's called The Phone Booth, where it's just Colin. And I watched it and I thought, my God, this boy's brilliant. And my husband then, my second husband, Bill, said to me, oh, you, you really should go. This young man has asked for you. You really should go and do it. And I was to play his landlady and I had to have a grey wig. And so I thought, all right, you've never been to South Africa. So off I went. And there was this enchanting creature. I thought, oh, I came, this is lovely. And then actors often think before they have a scene together on filming, if they've not met or worked together before, will often meet for a drink the night before or, you know, it's quite the done thing, so it wasn't unusual. Um, and I got a call from him saying, would you like a drink? We're doing a scene tomorrow. And I, I, he, he just said, would you like a drink? And I went downstairs, I said, yes. And we had a drink. And um, we were having, I, I just found him an enchanting young man. And we talked. And 
then I said, I really must go because we both got to go up early tomorrow morning. And he said, yes, well, I'll be up soon. And I'd clock the number on your teeth. So I'll be up soon. And I just laughed. It was just, he said, laughed. And I went upstairs. And I do remember that I had a nightdress that had a hole in the back. <laughs> yes. it, was a, you know, it was a real comfort nightie mm, that I took Ella. with me and things like that. Yeah. And um, I, you know, took any makeup I'd got on off. And someone was knocking on the door. And I thought, these South African um, maids that work in this hotel, they never stop knocking on the door. What are they going to give me now? Chocolates, I suppose. And I opened the door. And he walked just, just to the, to his, and I was just, I, and I started laughing immediately. And he said, well, I told you I'd be up. Yeah. And, and he said, what are you doing in that? <laughs> that's, that's an awful nightdress. And I said, well, it's my comfort nightdress. And I, I said, no, but okay, we've had the joke. And he said, no, aren't you going to give me a drink? And then he was just so enchanting that I'm afraid I let him stay for about an hour. And the, during which time, every so often, he would suggest we went to bed, and I would just laugh and say, "No way, Jose!" And um, and then finally, I I, I said, "No, you've got to go now." And he was just totally enchanting, and I never meant to tell that to anybody. He told it, didn't he? No, I went on Loose Women oh. a year later. A year I had not. I told my husband when I got back, I said, You won't believe it. Colin Farrell made a pass was, at me. Betty was proud of you. He was, he was. <laughs> and, and, and um, well, I think he would have liked me to have gone to bed with him. I think he was. Anyway, he, and so he knew, but that was the only person who knew. And then I go on Loose Women and I go out to do the talk and they start talking about serious acting and I could see the audience, it was, you know, I, a sea of grey-haired old ladies like myself now and I thought, oh, I don't want, they don't want to hear about serious talk about acting. And I said, don't let's talk about acting. I said, before I came on, you were talking about sex with no strings. Mm. And I said, that's much more interesting. Much let's more go on with that. <laughs> And they said, well, what do you want to step out? I said, well, I'll tell you something. I thought I'd cheer them up. I said, well, I'll tell you something really exciting, you know, really to give you all a thrill. When I was one week from 70, I was the most beautiful, exciting, sexy young man made a pass at me. And that's all I said. When the show finished, the women all said to me, who was it, who was it? I said, oh, I'm not telling, I'm not telling anybody. <laughs> by the time I got in the car, Bill called me and it was, I think it was live, because Bill called me and said, well, you were good on it, it was fun. By the time I then, I, I don't think I was living here, I don't know where I was. Yes, we were here. And, um, he literally had the uh, the press at our door by the time my car reached home. And it didn't stop. And there was an election on that week. And we had more pa 
pages from the election. All horrible, though, I think. I mean, all horrible. I don't remember that. I had to really hold my cool oh, and just not say anything to anybody. But I was distraught for him. And I rang up, I rang his telephone number, which I did have, and said, and, and made up a, a simply filthy limerick to make him laugh about it. Um, me sending myself up, and he he actually turned out not to be bothered at all. He's very nice about it. I've heard him talk about it. I was I was terrified when I knew he was going to go, and he went on with Jonathan Ross. Um, yes, but he was he, he he. I mean, I think you should be proud. He spoke about you in the warmest possible tones, and he said you were sexy, witty, he terrific. And I've seen, I mean, I saw him after that. He came to my first night of doubt on Broadway, which touched me beyond belief. He passes you, darling. <laughs> <laughs> I think on that note, I'm sure you've cheered up the customers of Sandow Books every bit as much as you've cheered up the audience on Loose Women with that final account of how you continue to be an absolutely a, a draw for charming young men <laughs> as well as audiences and people are going to love this book i know because i love it so much and i've given it to so many people already oh thank you so much sally really thank you this is john defaub from john sandows i would like to thank dame eileen atkins and sally vickers for their kindness and time in recording their beguiling conversation for us what an honour. The book under discussion was, of course, Eileen Atkins's delicious memoir, Will She Do? Act One of A Life on Stage. It is available at 18.99 in hardback or from June, 9.99 in paperback. Sally Vickers's most recent novel, The Gardener, is available in hardback at 16.99 and will be available in paperback at 8.99 in July. Thank you for listening.